Hey everybody and welcome into episode 119 of the Landscape Photography Show. On this episode, we're talking with Mike Mejuel II. And you know, when we talk to photographers, so often the word paradox comes up. And that can be a tricky word and a tricky emotion to feel because we're really wired as humans to feel one emotion at a time and make sense of that. Paradox can be multiple emotions at one time. And in this episode, we're talking with Mike about that feeling. Mike has made a career out of photographing extreme landscapes, volcanoes, supercells, and just beautiful sunrises and sunsets, extreme landscapes as well. And oftentimes, yes, those are beautiful and they can be peaceful when you're clicking the shutter. But at the same time, when we're talking about things like storms and volcanoes, they have a destructive part to them as well. So we're going to be talking with Mike a lot about that feeling and grappling with the paradox of those situations. But we're also going to be talking with Mike about how he got started in landscape photography, a really unique story on how he began his journey in photography. And we're also going to be talking with Mike about his experience with social media from when he got started to where it is now. And is it really going in the right direction for photographers? The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're joined today by Mike Mejuel, the second junior, the third. Um, <laughs> Mike, what's up, man? Why don't if anybody is unfamiliar with you, doesn't really know how you got started in photography or your journey? Why don't you share kind of your epilogue of of how you got started in photography and what led you to where you are now? Yeah, for sure, man. So first off, you know, thanks for having me on and uh, you know letting me nerd out with you. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you know, we got to got to back up 22 years to to get back to the beginning, which 22 years does not seem like 22 years. It seems like a blink of an eye to be honest, but uh I was 15 years old when I got my first camera and uh, it was pretty much by accident, you know. It's uh long story short, <laughs> my parents they they'll they'll deny and fight this to the day, but uh they forgot my birthday. So <laughs> they came out with uh a black leather bag that had a old 1975 Yashica MG1 camera in it. And, you know, I was 15. You know, the last thing on my mind was, hey, you know, I want a camera for my birthday. You know, you're thinking more so like, I would love to get my like my driver's permit, you know, or like a cheap car to learn on or something like that. But uh, instead, I got a black leather bag. It smelled kind of funky, had like pieces like foam falling apart inside of it. And here was this brick of a camera. And uh, I was like, okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> cool. Like, you know, thinking maybe this is like a little bit of a prank or something. And my dad, uh, pretty much the way I tell it is my dad said something after that, that really uh, set my career going. And it wasn't on purpose by any means. And what he said was, uh, that was my camera from when I was in the Air Force. And I never really learned how to use it. So maybe you can. And with that being said, my dad and I always, you know, we had a, a, a fun, you know, competitiveness between each other all at all times. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, if my dad doesn't know how to use this, I'm going to learn how to use it to show him up, you know, to show him how I, you know, I can, I can use it. He can't. And so I, I, it was film. So I literally carried around a little yellow notepad with me, a little dorky spiral notepad. And I would go photograph things in my parents' garden or across the road in the little creek slash forest area, if you want to call it a forest in Texas. Um, we had trees, so we'll call it a forest. Um, and I would photograph these these things out there, not knowing anything about photography or composition or anything like that, and more so not knowing anything about the you know the technical aspect of photography. So I had no idea what an aperture was, no idea what ISO was, or back then ASA or film speed. Um, you know, I had no idea what any of that was. So I would just write down numbers from the camera and then kind of spin the dial and think, you know, maybe this will work or that will work. And long story short, I saved up my allowance and got the film developed 
And when I got the film developed, I'd always pay the additional like 99 cents to get the contact sheet that came with it so I can reference my notes. And I would take a look at, you know, okay, this image is too dark. This image is too blurry. This image is too bright. And take a look at the settings and be like, okay, how can I adjust that? Or what what can I do differently to make that image better? And uh, I would go down to... <laughs> This is this is a while ago. So I, you know, take my my very cool like huffy bike and you know bike my butt down to the library, go and check out a book and that had you know photography, you know basics or basics of photography in it, and I would learn that way. And so to kind of go through the years, I you know I've been completely self taught. I've never taken a photography class in my life. I I've learned through trial and error and just reading books and and magazines and and learning that way. So that's kind of where like my photography career like came from, you know, there was opportunities along the way that led to doors opening and prints and eventually lessons and workshops and then working with different clients and publications. But it all started with a really stinky old black leather case. When you said old stinky case, I was going to ask you if they just like drove down to the local pawn shop or something and picked up something random. Yeah, no, it, it was the the original bag that my dad had when he was in the Air Force. So, you know, this golly, this is, you know, it was 15. So this is, you know, we're looking at like 99. So this camera at that point had to at least be, you know, you know, 25, 30 years old. Uh, well, actually 20, yeah, 25 ish years old. And so, yeah, same bag. So it, it'd been through a lot. So it had quite the distinct smell to it. I, I know he said he'd never really learned to use it before, but did you ever see any of the photos that he shot with it? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I've never really asked him to be like, Hey, can you show me what you shot with this? Cause I think he used it more so just as like a, you know, like a point shoot or like a, you know, like just like a local, like Hey, let me take pictures at home kind of camera. Um, I, he, he, I know for a fact he was never like into photography, like the creative side of it. So I think he just used it more so for like trying to take pictures of, you know, myself, my mom, and, you know, maybe some people around the Air Force and whatnot, but nothing that was like really substantial where I'm like, oh, I want to see the art you created. Are you an only child? Uh, no, so I have a younger brother. He's seven years younger than I am. Okay. Okay. I didn't know because a lot of people like divert the sibling rivalry to a parent if they don't have any brothers or sisters. So I was just curious because I mean, that natural kind of competition that you said you had with your dad is just really interesting to me. Yeah. Now my brother and I are actually not all that competitive. Uh, It's just my dad and I like, you, you know, even to the point like last night we're playing oculus bowling talking crap to each other <laughs> so, <laughs> you know the the competitiveness is still carried on why do you think you don't have that with your brother uh i i don't know my brother's just always been like he is a great dude like one of the smartest guys i know and just most sincere and caring people that i know but he is very not confrontational <laughs> so i think when it comes to any sort of like competition he's just like i'm out like i you know there's no reason for this i'm done i'm out so you know he kind of keeps his own does his own thing and you know that's cool that's his thing me on the other hand like i you know not purposefully but i always want to be the best at whatever i do or like i want to you know i want to show that i can do something whether i care to do it or not i want to be that person that could that can do it so yeah so i think we're very different when it comes to that you know, it's funny when people come on and, and they talk about how they started in photography. A lot of people do say exactly what you say, you know, long story short, but then it turns out being like a five minute monologue of how they got started. Um, do you often go back and think about where you started and how you started and some of those early images that, that you shot and, and relate it, compare and contrast to where you are now? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the biggest downsides uh, to photography is sometimes you get so consumed by the present moment. And, you know, I think a lot of photographers will tend to crash and burn uh, career wise or creatively, uh, creatively speaking as well, because they forget where they started. Um, You know, I've, I've met photographers that have had such egos. And, you know, I'm asking them, 
you know, simple questions. And this is one I'm like learning, you know, I, I remember for instance, there was a photographer, uh, I shot my first NFL game and I had no idea like what the rules were, like where I could stand, where I couldn't stand, you know, what I, what I can do, what I couldn't do. And I was honestly scared out of my wits. It was, uh, it was, it was extremely nerve wracking. And so I asked this photographer and, you know, he's a very well-known photographer in the area. I asked him, I was like, Hey, you know, where can this is my first game like hi i'm mike you know where you know where can i stand where can i stand and he basically just said just don't get in my way and i was like okay like that is extremely helpful like you know you know in that moment i was like dude remember you eventually you know you 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 obviously had your very first nfl game at some point i'm sure somebody helped you out there too you know so i think it's important to kind of reflect back on you know where you started with your career when you you know what your first images were to see how much growth you've had, because we are always our harshest critic as well. So sometimes you can look at an image that you shot and you're just like, oh man, I suck. Or this is horrible. But then you, you know, you have no nothing to compare to. So if you take a minute to kind of step back and like really look at, you know, what you shot five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you're like, okay, maybe I don't suck as much as I think. And, you know, I have right next to my desk, I have a frame that has my very first tornado and my very first lightning photos. And they're both on film and I have the negative in there with them. And I have that because, you know, one, it's cool. It's like my first lightning, my first tornado photo. But also I look back on that because, you know, I look at it and I'm like, oh man, like I could have done so much better, but hey, that's, that's where I started. And this is where I'm at now. So appreciate it. Um, I'm sitting here staring at it right now going, oh man, that horizon's so off level. <laughs> like there's there are the framing's horrible on that tornado, but you know, it is what it is. You know, you, that's how you grow is I think you have to reflect back on where you came from. Knowing that you're a competitive person, you know, thinking about that story of that photographer who told you just to not get in his way, any animosity there? Nah, you know, uh, no. Nah. I, I'm, I don't like to hold grudges. So for me, I, I look at that and I go, okay, you know what? That sucked, but don't ever be that guy. Like, yeah. you know, like, I, and that's something that I try to do everywhere I go. Any, any other photographer I run into, uh, you know, I've had people in all honesty come up to me like, oh my gosh, it's Mike. And I'm like, hi, I'm just a normal guy. I'm a nerd with a camera. And they're like, you know, can I stand next to you? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, yeah, like, let's, let's share this spot. I don't own this spot. And then, you know, I had somebody while I was in Iceland asking me for tips. And he's like, dude, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. Like, I don't mean to ask. And I'm like, I'm glad you're asking. I'd rather like, we have a really great sky. I'd rather you walk away learning and getting an image than, you know, going, oh, man, I'm on the flight home. I wish I would have done this differently. You know, like, I, I always try to kind of pay it forward. That's good, though. I mean, I think there's a difference, though, in, in holding a grudge and using it as like motivation, because like you, I'm a very highly competitive person. And I, I wouldn't I don't think I'd come away with the situation like that, where I'm like, you will rue the day that you said that to me. It would be more like I'm going to use this for motivation to like get even better. Um, yeah. And there's a difference there, I think. Yeah, I think I when when that whole thing happened, you know, like I said, for, first NFL game, this was back in like 2010, I think it was. Who was playing? Uh, do you remember? Yeah, it was Washington Redskins and the Cowboys. Washington uh, football team or the Washington yeah, yeah. Commanders now. Oh, OK. All right. So, yeah. So <laughs> it was, yeah, the Commanders, I guess, back then or now. But uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was those guys playing and. Yeah, like I said, I think I was just more so like I was so excited to be there. And, you know, I thought that, you know, everybody else would have this kind of same sort of excitement, you know, like, ah, you know, it's like to me, you know, my first NFL game is just a regular season game. You know, to me, this is like shooting the Olympics. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So when he said that and he and that was his response, I was just kind of like shooken up a little bit. I was like, OK, everybody here is mean. <laughs> you know, I want to <laughs> go back to NHL where all those guys are really kind, you know, <laughs> so uh but yeah, I mean, you, there's two ways to, you're going to always run into people like that. There's two ways to handle it. One, you can let it get to you and bring you down or, you know, make you frustrated and hold a grudge or whatever. Or you can just let it be a lesson to, hey, don't ever be that person. And if somebody ever needs your help, like you needed their help, 
you know, treat them in, a, in the way that you would want to be treated. Do you see landscape photography in that community in general as competitive? Uh, you know, yes and no. Definitely not as competitive some as the other subjects I've photographed. Like, for example, like uh, concert photography or, uh, you know, professional sports. I've shot MLB, NFL, NBA, um, uh, NHL was primarily what I shot back then. And, you know, that, that was pretty competitive. You know, I would see guys get really upset if they missed the moments or they were on, you know, the wrong side of the goal for, you know, for the, the, the game winning goal. I think landscape photographers, you know, I think we all have some serious FOMO, uh, and you know, that, that can kind of carry over in a way or translate over into competitiveness. But uh, everybody for the most part, and I say for the most part, because there are bad seeds in every industry and in every subject matter you shoot. Um, everybody for the most part has been very cool, very chill, like, you know, very supportive uh, when you, you capture something, whether they were there or not. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think we all have a little bit, like I said, of FOMO and a little bit of competitive competitiveness that comes from that. But uh, for the most part, I, you know, I feel like a lot of landscape photographers are people who just love the outdoors, love hiking and exploring and are genuinely happy people and happy for each other when somebody gets a good image. Why do you think you gravitate towards landscapes? They don't talk back. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. No, um, I, I, you know, I, I, so the fun thing is I I do shoot everything. Like people don't really know the fact that like I shoot a lot of uh, commercial work here in Dallas. I shoot a lot of uh, family portraits. I shoot a lot of uh, aviation photography, like all this different stuff. But um, I do enjoy landscape the most out of that Um, in particular, like the, the more natural disaster side of stuff. But like, Landscapes, I think this world that we live in is absolutely beautiful. And, you know, it's a short life when you really think about it. And would you rather be stuck inside all day or out exploring, you know, these beautiful spots on the world? So, you know, being able to tie something like photography, which I'm incredibly passionate about, in with going and seeing these beautiful places, like it's a win-win. So, you know, I enjoy, I feel at home when I'm out in nature and I feel uh, just the stress and worries that maybe coming with life just kind of lift off my shoulders when I'm out there. So for me, I'm not a materialistic person. Like I don't need a fancy car. I don't need a big house. I don't need a, a huge TV. Um, I would much rather be in a tent in the middle of, you know, the Canadian Rockies and wake up freezing cold, but with a view, you know? So for me, that's where I find myself like calling home. Was that learned for you over time that that you don't need those big things and you'd rather be in the tent? Yeah. So, you know, I there's two two kind of moments that come to my mind when we talk about this is like one, you know, my family love them to death, but they are not the adventurous kind of people that I am like they um, they're their vacations are let's go to a five-star hotel that's all-inclusive sit on the beach and go eat at buffets all day and for me that makes me want to punch a baby like (laughs) like i i can't do it like i i literally just went to hawaii and i laid on the beach for a little bit while i was out there and i was like oh this is really nice okay, are we done? <laughs> like, I want to go, you know, I want to go hike. Um, so yeah, so uh, I kind of was the oddball out when it came to my family. Like I always wanted to go and uh, go and explore and and find new places rather than just sit at the hotel. But um, that's kind of where my travel kind of got sparked was with that. But when I went in 2017, I literally built a bed in the back of my Subaru and I put everything I had in storage and I took just a few small things like uh, it was like a small duffel bag plus my camera gear and my laptop and and of course my dog and I I went I just left and I ended up doing like I think it was like somewhere close to 30,000 miles um, and I was gone for seven months I, I drove all the way up to like northern Alberta 
and then all the way back down and checked out all these different national parks and state parks and BLM land and just explored. And I remember like coming home from that and getting back to my store, Junior, and opening it up and just seeing this pile of crap. <laughs> and I was just like, why? Why do I need this? Like, why? Like, I have like three TVs. Why do I need this? Like, you know, so I really uh, took that time to kind of go through and dwindle down what I had um, to try to just keep it to the essentials, the, you know, the basics of life. And like, it's okay to have things like a, a TV or like a PlayStation or something like that. But like, you don't need three TVs. You you don't need, you know, all these fancy like espresso makers and cappuccino makers. And like, I really wanted just to get to the basics. And I feel like a simpler life at home is a simpler life overall. What was the hardest thing for you to get rid of in that experience? Oh, man. Um, while I was on. OK, so I mean, obviously, while I was on the road, I really missed my bed. <laughs> like I have a really comfortable bed and, and sleeping on top of a, uh, a four inch mattress pad in the back of a car, sharing it with your dog uh, gets <laughs> it's fun for like the first week. Mm -hmm. Um, so I missed my bed, but I think like from a materialistic, like truly materialistic standpoint that like, you know, I really missed, I think was probably, oh gosh, probably, probably like having a 27 inch monitor to edit on. Cause everything was on my laptop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it is nice to have like a bigger monitor and stuff like that. So that's where I will kind of invest into like materialistic things if they have like some sort of like return on investment, but like just things just to have things just to me, it's, it's no longer needed. You know, there's a lot of change that can happen in moments like that. Um, and outside of learning about yourself that, that you weren't materialistic and you didn't need all those things. What did you learn about your life and how did you want to live it? after that experience? Yeah, you know, I think with that whole experience, I, I learned that back then I worried about so much that was not in my control. Um, I found myself worrying about almost everything. And um, I realized when you kind of let go of control and just let life play out how it should, it's a lot less anxiety filled it's a lot less stressful and um for me like i remember coming back from that that trip and just being like i don't care like and i don't mean that in a bad way but like you know i care but like i don't care like i'm not gonna try and force things i'm not gonna try and you know direct my life in one direction that maybe it shouldn't go in i'm just gonna let life happen and kind of go with it and that's kind of been my mentality since it's just like hey kind of kind of go where the wind blows you and um you know obviously you gotta work at times and you know bust your butt for things that you want but um i'm not gonna you know worrying is like a rocking chair it gives you something to do and get you nowhere so yeah. that's kind of my mentality now it's a very texas saying <laughs> yeah yeah we got our rocking chairs out front on the front porch with our our horses right now <laughs> <laughs> since since that experience where has the wind blown you everywhere. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it, it really is funny to like kind of reflect back, like the wind has blown me in directions that I didn't think I was ever going to be in. And, you know, it's funny because you look back at, you know, where you thought life was supposed to go and how it was supposed to go. And you, you look at where life's at now and you're like, wow, you know, like if it had gone the way that I had quote unquote wanted it to go back then, I don't think I'd be happy now. So um, the wind has blown me into just different doors opening with my life in regards to opportunities to photograph, you know, different things, you know, to teach more across the world to, you know, photograph more than just storms, you know, like my big thing over the past, uh, what is it now? Six years has been, you know, active volcanoes, uh, which back then was really like nothing that I was like, okay, cool. Like I was just kind of getting into it. I didn't think it was going to be, it was going to be something where like last year I was on four erupting volcanoes throughout the year. Like, um, so it's, it's blown me in very good places and places that I feel comfortable in. 
You know, I get the question, how do you maintain the podcast being a photographer, being remote all the time? And, and podcasting remote can be really challenging, but it really doesn't have to be. With Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution, it makes the process really quick and painless and honestly the way it should be. If you know me and you've been following me for a while, I'm really obsessed with high quality audio and video. Zencaster provides crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. Not to mention, it's really easy to use. My favorite part of this is that I just email the link to go and record with the guests that come on the show. Hit record, it's as easy as that. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy with everything from local recording to automatic post-productions and the tools panel. You really don't even have to leave your browser to get one episode done. If you want to have the same easy experience as I do for all of my podcasting and content needs, you can go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the promo code the landscape photography show and you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com slash pricing and enter the code the landscape photography show for 30% off. It's time to share your story on a podcast. In terms of standing on top of active volcanoes, so maybe not on top, but witnessing them, um, what is that like for you in, in terms of like adrenaline rush and thrill? Or, I mean, vice versa, w- with a camera in your hands, it could really subdue you into like a flow state of just being there and experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, each each volcano is different. So last year, I documented Kilauea, uh, Pacaya, Fuego, and Fagarasfial, which is the one in Iceland. Hmm. And that pronunciation, uh, one, by the way, was solid. Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's right. I'm sure my Icelandic friends are gonna laugh when they hear this and be like, "You you are way off." But let's hear it gonna, one more time. Let's hear yeah, it. One more so time. I said, so Fagarasfial is what. I've been working on and what I think is right. But of course, like, you know, when you put 16 and a half vowels in a word, you're going to mess up somewhere. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, each one's different. Um, You know, some are filled with like uh, a little bit of fear um, because you understand that this volcano is not necessarily quote unquote, like a kind volcano. Uh, You know, for example, Fuego in, in Guatemala, that volcano has killed a lot of people, especially back in 2018. I had a major eruption. So every time I'm near that volcano, I do get a little bit nervous because I know that this is capable of, of death and destruction. And, you know, that that kind of makes it a little bit uneasy. But, you know, for example, Kilauea, which is more of like a kind volcano, quote unquote, you know, it, it has had some major eruptions, but uh, it's more of a calm volcano. It's 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 kind of, you know, peaceful to be around. So there's a different mix of emotions with every volcano, but no matter which volcano I'm at, I'm always in awe of the power and the beauty of these things. And also 100% respect them. So, you know, I never just go running up to a volcano, you know, as Mm -hmm. much as I'd love to like, you know, do like a slow motion run with my arms wide open and my camera in my hand and just go and hug a volcano. It just, it doesn't work like that. You know, like you have to approach with caution no matter what, because, you know, keyword is volcano. It's still a freaking volcano. So you got to, you know, approach with caution, whether it's a kind of volcano or, you know, an explosive volcano. Um, But yeah, I I always get excited. Always, no matter which one I'm going to, always get excited because they are so incredibly cool to see the images, the visuals that come from it. uh, It's awesome. And I love finding like little intricate stories hidden within the volcanoes as well. So uh, it's a really fun challenge, and uh, I think it's something I've become quite hooked on over the, the last six years. What would be an intricate story in a volcano? Uh, for example, so uh, this last uh, time I went out to uh, the Fuego Volcano in Guatemala, it was my third trip out there for 2021. And I wanted to focus a little bit more on how this volcano provides. And it's not just something to be feared. So there are porters that help us when we're on the volcano because it's a heck of a hike 
to get to base camp, depending on where you're setting up base camp, uh, you're typically 13,000 feet or almost 14,000 feet, really hard terrain to hike through. So they'll come up and they'll, they'll help carry, um, trees like literal, literal trees to take to our base camp and then they'll chop it up. So we have firewood at night or they'll help cook meals, uh, or they'll just watch the gear during the middle of the day while, you know, we're out hiking and, and shooting because sometimes you get really gnarly winds up there so that, you know, you want to make sure you come back and have a tent to sleep in. Uh, so this volcano is one, like I said, to be feared because it has, you know, killed people before, but at the same time without this volcano, uh, the villagers that are porters on this volcano would, they wouldn't have jobs. So it's providing jobs for them, even though it can very quickly destroy their entire village. So yeah, those little stories, there, there's little stories hidden in pretty much every volcano. And that, that's what I enjoy finding as well. It's, it's These conversations are so interesting for me because it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with storm photographer Justin Sneed um, about his experience yeah. in photographing storms. Um, and, and we discussed how you're reminding me of it w- with volcano photography. And I know you do storms too, so you can speak to that as well. But the paradox that lies within photographing a destructive force of nature. Number one, thrilling. Number two, can be beautiful. But number three, in the back of your mind lies that this is a destructive force. It can kill people. It can hurt people. It can take people's livelihoods, their homes. How do you grapple with that in the back of your mind? Uh, You know, it's... For me, it's when all comes down to respect um, because it can kill other people. It can kill me. Um, And that's something that you, when you go out to photograph, whether it's volcanoes or storms or hurricanes or, you know, blizzards, whatever, you have to respect it because it can kill you. You are not invisible just because you're out there with a camera and you're like, ah, you know, I'm here to document this doesn't mean that you can't get yourself in trouble um, as well. So, um, you know, it's always a respect thing to, to, to look at it, to have a bit of fear. I think fear is good because fear means you respect it and you understand the power of it. Um, but at the same time, you have to also kind of split your mentality into fear, respect, safety versus I need to get my job done and I need to create an image or tell a story. Uh, so, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you have to, you have to accept what you, what could happen to you or what could happen to others. And, you know, I've documented several tornadoes that have gone through, uh, neighborhoods. And, you know, I, I remember being in Joplin, Missouri when the tornado hit there mm-hmm. and, and I was, I was actually on assignment for a paper. And I remember trying so hard to just think about everything through my viewfinder was a movie. And the reason for that was because if I really like interpreted what was going on in front of me, my emotions would get the best of me. So that, that, and that has happened before, um, to where like I couldn't focus on shooting because I was literally sitting on the side of a curb bawling my eyes out because of some of the stuff I saw. And, you know, you have to be able to kind of figure out a way to cope with what's in front of you. If it does go South, like, you know, tornadoes and open fields are beautiful volcanoes where they're not creating massive pyroclastic flows or something like that. You know, they're beautiful. But the moment you start realizing that people's lives and property are being affected, uh, then you need to have some sort of shield for yourself because uh, it, it can take a toll on you. Is there a way you deal with it after the fact? Um, you know, it, it, yeah, yes and no. Uh, five, six years ago, I would literally sit there and let my thoughts get to me and just think about what I saw, what I experienced. And uh, it, it would put me in a pretty bad spot. You know, I didn't cope with it well. I, I wasn't able to kind of really uh, erase, per se, some of the images that I saw or some of the things that I saw. And, you know, it would keep me up at night. I'd lose sleep over it. I would have anxiety. I would, you know, stomach and knots and all that stuff. And 
And uh, now it is, you know, kind of built into me that, you know, I, I capture what I need to capture and tomorrow's a new day. You know, I, I can't think about something that I can't control anymore. And if I do, that's when it gets to the best of me. What do you think for you? How do you attribute like photographing so many things? Um, and, and I come at this with with my perspective of I want to do landscape, nature, photography, uh, and I only want to focus on that because I want to be as good as I possibly can be with that. It I, I look at your portfolio and I'm looking at your website right now and your whole just array of work, all the portfolios that you have across the board. And like, I, I don't think I could do it, but you do them all so well. What do you think you attribute that to? Uh, well, first, thank you. Thanks for the kind comments there, man. Um, you know, I think it is when you dedicate your life to photography, you really do dedicate your life to it. And, you know, for me, it's wanting to shoot everything that I can and do it well. Um, so, you know, all the portfolios that I have, you know, that's sleepless nights, that's hard effort, that's hard work, that's, you know, taking time away from family, relationships, um, being hungry, you know, like, uh, really making photography a priority. Um, plus, you know, I think that, you know, the, the industry has changed so much over the years that the days of saying, I'm just going to be a landscape photographer, or I'm just going to be a portrait photographer, unless you got your foot in the door earlier and got like really well established, uh, and, you know, got good clientele to back you up and, and different publications or whatever, like, I think those days are dead. I think that there's so many great, talented photographers in the industry that you really have to do something to diversify yourself. And that is wearing, uh, you know, my belief is wearing multiple hats and shooting multiple things well. So, you know, I know for a fact that if I had just dedicated my life to photographing landscapes and making my soul income off of that, um, it, it would be tough. I don't want to say it's not possible because I don't like saying that nothing in life is impossible, but it would be tough to do that. Um, especially, you know, coming into the industry right now, like I was very fortunate enough to get going back in 2010 and built up a name for myself, built up clientele, built up networks and connections and all that stuff. But it would be very challenging now to just come in and say, Hey, I'm just going to be this. How has it changed since you got in to now? Uh, I mean, it's just been, you know, social media has just grown the industry so much. It, it's such a double-edged sword. You know, it's it's something where, you know, it's so easy now to photograph spots or find locations because everybody tags a place or, you know, you can, you have Google Earth to go track down the location of the mountain that's in their frame. Um, but it's also great because it's a good way to market yourself, get your work out there. Uh, so it's also inspiring too you know you see these photographs you're like i want to go do that but then all of a sudden that spot becomes oversaturated uh with you know people so yeah it's 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 a double-edged sword there um and i think that is one of the if not the main reason why you know the photography industry has changed so much over the years um is because of social media you know when i started back in 2010 it was pretty much just Facebook and Facebook was like, I think even back then it was like where you had to have a college account to join. Yeah. And you know, it was back in the, the good old days. Um, and I remember looking at photos that I would post and the engagement on them would be, you know, 77,000 people or 666,000 people shared this image. And now, you know, it's so hard to get, that kind of engagement because I think people have already seen the scene or seen the landscape that you shot or, you know, obviously the algorithms have changed as well. So I think a lot has changed uh, the industry. Is social media heading in the right direction or the wrong direction for photography? Uh, you know, I think it's heading in the wrong direction. Uh, I think, Why? I think that, you know, social media has become so much more about the money, the clicks, all that stuff, the engagement. 
which I get in a way from, you know, the, you know, the platform standpoint, but you know, it's not so much more about like, Hey, let's just put work out there. You know, let's let people share their work. It's okay. Well, you know, if it doesn't meet this criteria or if it's, you know, not from this person and they don't have this many followers, it's not going to get seen. So I think, you know, if we got back to the roots of it to where, you know, the algorithms got back to, uh, you know, being better with giving mutual shares of viewership to everybody's images, then, then I think it'd be heading back in the right direction. But right now, you know, I'm sure everybody has seen the, the decline in engagement on Instagram and, that's because they're wanting to go more video. So if you're doing reels or video clips, then you're getting engagement. But if you're putting up, you know, a, a great photograph, it's not getting much of an engagement anymore. So, uh, yes, I think right now it's going more towards the video side of things, which is obviously not great for still photographers. I just can't put myself in front of the camera that much. No. And, you know, it's like... I. I, I get burned out. Like I get the reels. I like, I, I really do, but I get burned out on hearing like the same song over and over for everybody's reels <laughs> and seeing the same transitions and the same, you know, Oh, here's somebody walking through this landscape kind of look. And, you know, like it, it, it's, it's all the same and I don't want to contribute to that. And I, you know, I keep telling myself, okay, I need to do something different, but then at the same time, I'm like, I, I already have my hands full with enough still work. I don't need more time to dedicate to like video work. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm trying not to sound lazy, but it, you know, it is part of like a balance of time. I, I want to go back to something that you said at the very beginning uh, that, that caught my attention of you being self-taught with your photography and other things that you had tried. Had you always been that way? Yeah, you know, um, I've I've been pretty much self-taught and everything. Like, uh, you know, I'll utilize books here and there, um, but I like to be given the tools and just let me figure it out. Like, you know, a lot of a lot of other things that uh, I do that people may not know that I do is like I do um, rock climbing, I do uh, wood burning, uh, I got into uh, like acrylic painting there for a little while. Wait, what is wood burning? Um, wood burning? Oh, it's like uh, you take pretty much a piece of wood uh, and then you'll have like, like a, you'll take pretty much like a, a cut of tree, like a slice of tree. And you'll take a, it's almost like a soldering iron and you have different tips that you can put on there and it gets really, really hot. And you can actually carve into the wood and essentially draw or paint however you want to look at it with this uh, like really, really hot steel tip soldering iron thing. And okay. uh, you can do shading, you can do dimension, all that stuff with it. So, yeah, so that was something else that I kind of got into and just kind of self-taught as well. Um, I've got into glass blowing in the in the past year and a half. Um, and that, you know, obviously you need somebody there to kind of help you with that because that's <laughs> pretty dangerous. But, you know, once... You know, once I got the, the the basics down on it, I'm like, okay, let me get creative. Let me start, you know, doing it myself. Um, so, yeah, so I feel like I've always been that way. Like, I haven't really ever been like a, hey, sit down, take this kind of class and then go out and do it. It's like, give me, give me the gear and let me go figure it out. At what point you saying, you know, learn the basics and then, hey, let's get creative. At, at what point with photography for people listening, do you say, you've pretty much learned it. Uh, it. It's time to, you know, get creative, find your style. Yeah. You know, it, everybody learns at a different pace. And so for me, like with the workshops that I run, what I'll do is I typically will have people that are return clientele and, you know, they come, you know, two, three times and some of them come like nine, 10, 11 workshops. And I'm like, okay, guys, I have nothing left to teach you. Please go. <laughs> like, I love you, but <laughs> it is time to spread your wings. Uh, but yeah, like uh, everybody learns at a different pace. So for me, I don't right off the bat say, hey, don't, don't be creative. I say, here's the techniques. Here's the composition I would do. But let's see what you want to create. And from right, right off the bat, I'm giving them that creative freedom to like, hey, let's see what you see. Like, because we all see the world differently. We all see, we could all be standing there with a, 
you know, a 14 to 24 millimeter lens and the same landscape, but we're all going to shoot a little bit differently. So, uh, yeah, I don't really ever say, Hey, you know, now you are able to go like, you know, <laughs> go spread your wings and fly, uh, right off the bat. I want to see what people are capable of, and then I'll help correct them on the things that need to be corrected technically. If that makes sense. It does definitely. It, and if somebody is coming, you, you just kind of alluded to what kind of a teacher you are, let's say, I sign up for one of your workshops. What, what am I going to get coming on that? You're going to get no sleep. Um, yeah. So. I mean, not, not a big change from day to day life for me. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, no, so, uh, it's an adventure, you know, people come on my workshops, we're out for sunrise, we're out for sunset, we're out in the middle of the day for good light. Uh, but what they'll get from like a learning standpoint is to see how I would approach scenes and how, um, I would shoot those scenes and technically how they'd be done compositionally, how they'd be done. And then, you know, I, I kind of oversee how they shoot and then I give them my constructive criticism. And then at that point it is up to them to go, yes, I will accept that or no, I won't. And to me, it doesn't matter each either way. Like you can, I can sit there and say, Hey, you know what, on this image here, I'd go a little bit tighter and I would tilt down and then they can go, that's great advice, Mike, but I like it how it is. And you know, who's right. They are. It's their image. It's it's you know that's the work they want to create. That's the work they want to create. So um, when I do my workshops and when I teach, I try to my best to kind of give advice, give experience uh, from what I've learned in the past, and then let everybody kind of mold that into what they want to create. If that you know if that all sounds good to them, some people do want to come out and say, "Hey, Mike, uh, you know, I want to shoot exactly what you'd shoot here," and you know, I'm like, "Okay, well, you know, here's how I do it." Um, but are you sure you don't want to try to get, you know, get creative with your own eye? And they're like, nope, I want that shot. I'm like, okay, cool. That's, you know, you are, you are my client and I will make you happy with getting you the shot you want to get. Do you have any lined up for the coming years? Uh, workshops? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, quite a few, uh, 2022 is all sold out now. Um, and I've got the tornado alley tours, some monsoon lightning workshops. I've got, uh, the Oregon coastline. And then for next year, about three quarters of the workshops are sold out for next year. Uh, I've got La Fonten, where we're going to go up to the La Fonten islands of Norway and document the Northern lights. We've got tornado alley. We've got monsoon. We've got grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Hawaii. So there's a, uh, I think I had 12 next year lined up. So that's quite a few. It's a busy year. Yeah, it's it's a busy year, but I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so it's so much fun getting to teach because you're getting to take people to essentially your happy place and show them, you know, your favorite shots, your favorite compositions. And, you know, for me, what I really love is when somebody comes to me and I, I in our meet and greet, I always say, hey, what is your what's your unicorn shot? Like if you were to walk away from this experience getting one image, what would it be? And you know, if they can walk away with that image, I love it. Like I like absolutely love it. And if they don't walk away with that image, usually they walk away with something that they didn't expect to get. And they absolutely love that image as well. So this last workshop uh, was in Hawaii and we split it between the big island and Kauai. And of course, in the meet and greet, uh, everybody's unicorn image was, I want to see Kilauea erupting. And I was like, guys, I wish, I wish I had the, I wish I'd kill away on the clapper. Like, you know, like just, all right. And it's erupting, you know? Uh, and so I told him, I was like, you know, I will do everything I can to make sure you are there if she starts erupting, but it is a, you know, natural thing. I can't control it. And, uh, the first night we were there, we were having dinner on the, uh, West coast of Hawaii or of, uh, Kona. And I checked the webcam for Kilauea and I noticed a small glow and I was like, there's no way, no way, like no way. <laughs> and then, uh, when dinner was wrapping up, I checked the webcam again and there was a full on pond of lava in the bottom of Kilauea. And so I, I started getting excited and I told him about it and I was like, you guys better be ready in the morning because we're going to be up like 3 a.m. heading out that way if it's still erupting. And three o'clock in the morning, we all woke up and uh, the webcam was just full of lava. And we we hauled out there and we got two days of shooting uh, Kilauea and then she turned back off. She stopped erupting. <laughs> so 
that was one of those those workshops where I was just like, okay, thank you, nature. I owe you one for that because they all walked away with the shots that they wanted to get. And that to me is just like so thrilling. I love it. I love the fact that they were like, hey, we want this shot. We know it's like <laughs> it's a hell of a hard shot to make happen. But if it if it is something that we can do, let's make it happen. And they all got it. That's amazing. And so fortunate too. Oh yeah. Like they just the timing couldn't have been any better. If anybody wants to find more out about you or sign up for a workshop, where can they go? Uh, yeah, so they go to my webpage, which is mikemezphotography.com. And if they go to the webpage uh, up there at the top, I think it's the third tab in from the left is workshops and adventures. And they can check out what's available for like 2022 and 2023. Uh, and uh, yeah, go from there. Awesome, man. Well, Mike, I, I really appreciate you joining us and talking photography today. Yeah, no problem, man. I appreciate you having me along. So that was a really fun episode with Mike Meduel. Uh Mike and I sat down and had this conversation, and, and it was really great to hear somebody who had photographed things like insane storms and volcanic eruptions and I thought my favorite part from this was hearing his stories about meeting the local people who help him get the photos that he wants to get and act as his guides around these places. So often we forget about the people who live in the locations that we go to photograph and, and the images that we take from those places. They get to experience that and live it out. Even in really destructive situations, they still live there day to day. And I think we should remember that as photographers too. So I just want you to remember the podcast today was sponsored by Zencaster. You can go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the code, the landscape photography show and get 30% off. If you want to start your own podcast and start to tell your story as a photographer, I think podcasting is a great way to do that. Also, if you want to support the podcast and just help it going week after week, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for a tier that you feel like is appropriate to support the Landscape Photography Show. I really appreciate those who have gone there and done that. And if that is you, thank you. And if that is future you, thank you again. I'll see you guys next week.